Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to be with you. I'm still learning how to do this. I'm glad that you guys have joined in. Looks like there's nine people watching so far. Today we're going to talk about the temple. I uh, I shaved this morning, although not too good. Um, I I wonder if you guys might be willing to share this. Uh, I know that Mormon Stories does this a lot, and John Delin. Uh, I think it helps out a ton. If you're willing to share this to your own Facebook page or to a group that you participate in where this would be welcome, uh, if you'll share it, it just gets a lot more reach and would love if you did that. Also, if you'll just leave comments anywhere along the way, if the sound is not good, uh, would love to hear from you in terms of the sound quality. If there's something I can do to fix that, I'll try. But uh, we have this great opportunity. I've got about an hour and a half this morning to talk to you about the temple. Um, and I want to first maybe just go over some of the books that influenced me. I am 41 years old. I joined the church at 17 in, uh, I think, April of 1996, my senior year in high school. And um, I immediately took an interest, like deep interest in this thing that I was joining. And I wanted uh, to know as much as I could about the this religion, this faith. And so I'll just share with you some of the books that uh, that I've read along the way. So Hugh Nibley. Uh, temple in the Cosmos. So there's one that ties into the temple. I probably read that one the least and gave it uh, the least amount of import importance of the books that were on my shelf. Temples of the Most High by N.B. Lundwall. Uh, this was a great book. It had lots of fascinating stories about the elevator shafts in Salt Lake Temple being inspired because the elevators weren't invented yet. And there were elevator shafts that were prepared because, because Brigham Young knew that someday elevators would be invented, except that they already were. Um, so a lot of those stories don't really hold up, but it's a cool book. And it has a lot of interesting things about the various temples that were existing. Endowed from on high, sorry, that little glare there. Endowed from on high, understanding the symbols of the endowment, John D. Charles. I read that one as I prepared for my endowment. Looks like there's 25 of you now. Would love if you guys shared uh, anything that was going on. Would love your comments. Um, I'm just going to put a little quick question in here. Ask, ask questions along the way or share your story. Would love to hear from each of you uh, and, and things that are going on. Um, the House of the Lord by James E. Talmadge. So there was another one that, uh, that influenced me. Here's the one. Boyd K. Packer, The Holy Temple. Um, that was a good one. Now, I think the best book of all of them, and I think it's one that every one of you should, should take the time to, to read. It, it influenced me about the temple development in the same way um, that uh, D. Michael Quinn's Mormonism in the Magic World View influenced me about Joseph Smith's early life and his uh, folk magic practice. And that is Devery Anderson's, uh, let's see here, whoop, Development of the LDS Temple Worship. Um, that is a fantastic book. And every page you're, you're intrigued and uh, thoughtful uh, examination of all the temple changes that we have records of are out there. And so you can, in, in that book, and you can kind of read those. Obviously, there's been changes in recent years, in recent year, and uh, those changes are not going to be in there. But a lot of the older stuff is there. 
So today I wanted to talk about my experiences with the temple. And I'll tell you, when I first was investigating the church, the idea of uh, families forever is this big thing that I that was important to me. Um, I, I, I really grabbed on to this idea. I always wanted to be a good dad, and I always wanted to be a good husband. And I, I watched as I lived in my household. My dad was a good father. My dad was a good husband. And as I watched my family life, I wanted to be. But I also saw that there were barriers. I, I, I lacked certain skills. And I needed community. I needed, um, I needed help. And when Mormonism came along, it really felt like this solution, this deep answer to, to my needs. And, and so this idea is I took the uh, discussions from the missionaries and they told me that families can be together forever. It was this motto that really grabbed a hold of me. So I investigate the church. I, I end up getting baptized uh, into the Sandusky Ward in the Cleveland, Ohio mission. And very soon after baptism, there is a trip to do baptisms for the dead. And our temple, our temple in the Cleveland, Ohio mission was, or in the Cleveland, Ohio stake was the Toronto temple. And Toronto was eight hours away. And so the youth prepared and the adults who uh, supervised or chaperoned that trip, it was, it was an eight hour drive there, the performance of those rituals and eight hours back. And I remember when I went to the Toronto temple that um, I wanted a spiritual experience. I had a spiritual experience praying about the Book of Mormon. And, and even to this day, like, I don't know what to do with that. The, the experience was more than just like, oh, I feel good about it, so it must be true. It was deeper than that. And so I don't know exactly what to do with that experience. I certainly don't believe anymore that it means that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true because all kinds of people all across the world have deep and profound spiritual experiences that tell them that their religious system is true. We did an episode on Lucy Walker, and we shared a video in there where multiple members of multiple faiths talk about their spiritual experiences. But I had one. And as I'm preparing to go to the Toronto Temple, I'm expecting to have a significant experience again. I'm expecting to like, oh, this is what happens in Mormonism. You have spiritual experiences all the time. Like as long as you stay close to God, God will continually reiterate to you that the church is true through spiritual experiences. And, and so as I go to the Toronto Temple, I'm, I'm with these kids that I've built friendships with, but I don't. I don't know them super well, but I'm building these early friendships and we're having a fantastic time. The trip is great. I get into the temple and I'm there to do baptisms. And as normal, the uh, one of the temple presidency or somebody up in leadership uh, comes out and, and gives a talk. And um, as I'm, as I, then the talk ends and people start doing the ritual of getting baptized by proxy for those who are deceased. I feel like I'm closed in by other people that I don't see, that the room is full and that they, I can tell that there are spirits here and those spirits are here to get their work done. And um, I, I just feel this sensation like I'm all scrunched in, like there's someone sitting on each side of me and in front of me and behind me and all around me. And meanwhile, there's only like seven of us kids. It's a small ward. 115 active members. 
And, and so early on, I have this spiritual experience in the temple. And it's, so it's my expectation that that's how things work. Again, I expect in Mormonism to have spiritual experiences over and over and over again on a regular basis. So at some point, I, I take temple prep. So I joined the church in 96. I go on that baptismal trip. In September of 97, uh, I marry my, my fiance. Uh, Amanda, and still married to her today. We get married in the Washington, D.C. temple, but before that happens, we take a temple prep class. And I remember my, my father-in-law is trying to help prepare me. Um, I have, I think, if I remember right, I'm sitting in an actual class. Somebody came over and gave me lessons, uh, and I think there were me by myself for most of those. And then on some of those um, there were more than one person, but I remember there was a sister. I, I still good friends with her today. She was a return missionary, uh, a few years older than me and return missionary. And she taught one of those lessons to me. And as I'm taking the temple prep class and now looking back and even looking back, once I actually received my endowment, there's this recognition that temple prep class is insufficient. It really doesn't do a very good job of preparing us to go to the temple. And, and so I'd love to hear your, your two cents, any thoughts that you guys have in terms of when you took temple prep, but I felt if I was anything but prepared for the temple by going through the temple prep class, I felt I had more preparation by reading the little pamphlet, uh, the Holy temple by Boyd K Packer that was handed out back in the nineties. I felt like that prepared me better than, you know, multiple, sessions of sitting down with people and them trying to instruct me because everybody seemed in Mormonism, everybody's scared. Everybody's scared about what is to be kept secret and what is not to be kept secret. And we all want to stay so far shy of the line so as to not do the wrong thing. And so Mormonism doesn't set these clear boundaries, even today, right? Like the church shows the garments on a video and basically says, like, it's okay to show these now and to talk about them. And then you have the first presidency coming in after these recent changes of a year or year and a half ago or whatever it was. And you have the first presidency coming on with an introductory video going like, uh, on second thought, let's not talk about any of this. And, and so there's this push and pull, which, by the way, is what happens in abusive and unhealthy relationships, is there's never any kind of clear boundaries. And so the church itself says like, uh, you shouldn't talk about the tokens and the signs, but you might be able to talk about everything else. And, you know, the garments should never be shown, but, you know, there are some situations where you have to, and now we're going to show a video where we should, where it's okay to show them. But now we're also going to put out a, a first presidency, uh, introductory three minute conversation at the beginning of the temple endowment and say, don't talk about it at all. And so there's this push and pull. As I took temple prep, I could tell that nobody wants to talk about this thing. And I just want to know what I'm getting into. And my father-in-law explains it to me in a way that I, I have this image in my head. And while I'm talking to you, I'm actually going to pull up uh, a picture. But I have this image in my head that I'm going to be taking off my clothes with other people. And I'm going to be going down to some like pool and I'm going to be washed and anointed. And it scared the, the hell out of me. Um, I wasn't sure what 
that was about. Um, I didn't know, like, I didn't understand what I was about ready to get into. And I, like, I knew the church was true. And, and so I, I wanted to participate, but I was scared of what I keep hearing about these washings and anointings. And, and somehow I got in my head that I go down into some kind of pool and, and people are going to wash and anoint me. And I'm just like, oh my God, what's going to happen here? What, what is this? What's this about? And so I want to share with you um, a picture here. Let's let me open this up. So first I've got to kind of pull my screen in, but you'll see there, there is a bathtub. This is how the endowment uh, used to be done. Um, this, this is what used to occur. So men and women would get undressed. They would go into this bathtub and this is where the washings and anointings would take place. So I believe now, like I, I have to, um, I have to have somewhere have read this. I must have encountered this because I was reading everything. I read Von Brody's "No Man Knows My History." I was reading Nibley. I was reading uh, the New Jerusalem Apologetic Site. I was reading. Um, Fair Mormon was just kind of coming on to the scene. I was reading some of their stuff. I was reading these little packets of farms uh, publications that had these brown covers on them out of Deseret Book. I was ordering those off uh, off the internet. And when I would go to um, a, a church bookstore, I would pick these kinds of things up. Anything that was historical. Uh, I took history as a minor in college. It's just something I've always been fascinated with. And, and so I'm preparing for the endowment. I'm scared to hell because nobody's explaining what's going to happen to me. Um, I'm taking this temple prep class, but it's anything but preparatory. And I, I hear about the Masonic connections. I, I hear little bits and pieces as I'm reading online about how masonry is connected to Mormonism and how uh, Mormonism, Joseph Smith had stolen essentially all of the Masonic rituals and signs and tokens and, and use them to create the endowment, which there's a huge amount of truth to that. But as I reached out and started to ask people, like, help me understand this connection with Masonry, the early apologetic answer in the 90s was that Masonic rites and rituals go back to uh, Solomon's Temple. And um, Solomon's Temple essentially, you know, goes back into biblical times and that there were Masons who worked on the temple who were dissatisfied and they kind of broke away. Um, and as they did that, um, they took those rites and rituals with them. And so that was the apologetic explanation for uh, it. And, and that worked for me. It was enough for me. I, I was able to make do with that. And so I get ready to go to the temple. My, my father-in-law is my escort through the temple. Every person who goes through the, for the first time has to have an escort with them. And by the way, I plan to be deeply respectful today. I plan to show what I think is there's an argument that can be made that it can be shown. And I'm going to refrain from showing that, which I don't think I could make an argument for showing. And, and so I hope people will perceive and understand that I'm not, I'm not just because I'm out of the church that I don't just want to be an asshole. I don't just want to, you know, trample on things, but I want to be honest and I want to, and I want to stop the bullshit of sacred, not secret. And so as I go through the temple for my first time, my father-in-law is the escort for me. My mother-in-law is the escort for my, my wife. 
my wife to be. And um, my brother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law at the time, uh, they've since gotten divorced. My sister-in-law at the time, they also came along you're nervous. You're, you're, man, I'm sweating. I, I go into this room and this is back in 1997 when, when you got the washing and anointing, there was a shield. So you had this like cloth that had a hole in it and it went over your head, kind of like a poncho. And so you had your front covered and you had your back covered, but just by this loose sheet and wide open on the sides. And so I sit down for the washing and anointing and this man takes uh, water and he touches certain spots. I bless your eyes. I bless your, I bless your heart. I bless your, your loins. I bless. And I never, nobody ever touched me inappropriately. I've in the last couple of days, I've asked for people to send in comments. And some of you reported back that inappropriate things happened in the washing and anointing. Um, I was nervous in that ordinance, but I nothing inappropriate happened and there was nothing traumatizing in the washing and anointing to the point where going forward, it was my favorite temple ordinance to participate in. Red Roca coffee, by the way, delicious. If you're on this side of Mormonism, coffee is a hard thing to get used to drinking. Um, it took me about a, I used to drink it when I was an older teenager and and now I've started drinking it again in the last say year, two years probably. And in those two years, um, just really fall in love with coffee again. But, but Red Roca is the, the coffee company that sponsors the podcast. Um, just delicious stuff. Um, I, I go into the washing anointing and nothing inappropriate happens. You have this shield. So you're essentially naked with this thin, almost like semi-transparent sheet covering the front and back of you. And I actually enjoyed the ordinance. Um, I enjoyed the washing and anointing like as a ritual. And when that gets done, then you're handed your first pair of garments and you put those on. And so now you have your, your G's, right? That's what we call them in Mormonism, your garments. And never to really come off except to shower or use the restroom or go for a swim. But generally speaking, they stay on you all the time. And I leave the uh, I leave the uh, washing and anointing, and um, now comes the endowment. And I got washed, anointed on one day, endowed on the same day, and then done for that day. Came back the next day, and our sealing took place between me and my wife to be. And uh, the endowment struck me like there were there were things that really um, got to me in the endowment. Um, and there's a part early in the endowment where the people tell you that the person who's officiating tells you that you are about to make sacred obligations. By the way, there's 49 people watching now. If you would love to, I'd love if you shared it. Um, the way you show me that this work is important is by, by trying to see if there's anybody else who's interested in this too. It's, it's missionary work on this side of things. Every member, uh, every, every uh, ex-member, a missionary. So if you want to share it to your Facebook page, that would be much appreciated. There's 44 people uh, watching at the moment. Glad that you're here. We'll publish this audio afterward as well. So I go into the endowment and early on, there's this conversation happening between the person officiating where they say, you're about to take sacred obligations. I don't know the exact wording. If somebody wants to Google it and post it here in the comments, feel free to. Um, you're, gonna, you're about to make sacred obligations and covenants and oaths. If you don't want to do that, 
raise your hand and we will escort you out. Now, here's the problem. I don't know what I'm about to promise. This would be like signing a really serious contract without having the chance to read it or tearing it up and not signing the contract without a chance to read it. I don't know if the contract is promising me a million dollars. I don't know if the if the contract is promising me uh, disease and death. And and so I felt in that moment like I'm I'm 19 years old. I just turned 19. I'm a week after my 18th birthday. My birthday is September 14th, 1978. I received my endowment on September 19th. Um, so just a few days later in 1997, and I get sealed on September 20th of 1997. So I'm just 19 years old. And it strikes me like, um, hmm, that's weird. They're offering me a chance to step away. They're offering me a chance to, to walk away from this. Um, but they're not telling me what it is I'm getting into before I walk away. And even then as a 19-year-old, newly fresh 19-year-old kid, that struck me as unhealthy. It struck me as unfair. It struck me as abusive. That nowhere else in the world are you told you can enter or not enter an obligation, and here's your chance to walk away, before somebody actually tells you what the obligation is that you're about to be asked to perform. So that struck out uh, as odd to me. I remember in that moment being scared, like what lies ahead? What am I getting myself into? I didn't know what I was going to be opting out of or opting into. When the obligations you're going to make are not explained to you before you sign the dotted line, there is a significant amount of unhealthiness there. It's unethical. And so my two cents, if anybody that's officially in Mormonism or has any influence in change you have to explain on the front end of things what somebody's going to be promising. That's the right thing to do. Anything short of that is unethical, borderline unethical and deeply unhealthy and abusive. So I proceed. I'm with my, I'm with my in-laws. There's a lot of pressure. I, I love this Mormon thing. I want to be Mormon. So I, uh, I sit through it all. I've got my packet, my little pouch. I'm dressed in white clothes, and now the obligations begin. So now I start making sacred promises. I start watching the temple video, and the temple video I thought was I thought was interesting um, for the first time watching it. Now was it interesting the thirtieth time I watched it? The fiftieth time? No, not no, not to that degree certainly. But the first time I found the temple video interesting. Um, the video gets over. We start making these promises. I start putting the clothing on. And two things happen, two things as I'm working through the endowment. One is that I almost bust out laughing. Like the hat the guys wear, uh, let me see if I can pull up a, a picture here um, of the hat and just show folks um, what this would look like. This, this hat, it never sits straight. Um, it, it sits up on top of your head and it's this little plastic a uh, flat thing that is kind of held up. And so the hat is essentially this empty piece of fabric with this plastic top on it. And it never sits straight, at least mine didn't. I could never get mine to sit straight. It always sat off to the side. 
Um, it, it never, it always fell off to my left or to my right. And, and so I'm left, um, I'm, I'm left feeling like an idiot. And then I look around the room and I see everybody else dressed. They've got the hat on, they've got the, 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 the sash, they have the apron, they've got the, the robe on one shoulder, they've got the string tied. And I look around and literally the thought here I am, I'm just 19 years old. And I look around and I go, what the heck? Like I almost start laughing because I think I, it looks like I'm at like a baker's convention. I'm sitting here with a bunch of bakers and we're about to be told what kind of recipe to make uh, Pillsbury dough balls or something. Um, and, and so there's that thought, which is hilarious. And I almost start laughing. I, and I, by the way, in the last three or four days, there've been a multitude of you who have also made the same comment that I almost started laughing because the garb is so strange. But the garb, let me show another picture, by the way. The garb is its own its own thing here. Um, let's see here. But the garb, the garb isn't enough to drive me away because I'm also being a student of not only church history, but biblical history. I, I'm aware of the, uh, let me minimize this here. I'm aware of like the garb of the high priest in the Old Testament. And so by our 2020 standard, that's a strange looking outfit. And yet we all are accustomed to looking to that as some level of normality, being that it was normal in their day and age. And so when I see the temple garment, when I see the temple clothing, it, it really is no more strange, maybe even less strange than the high priest vestments. So once you understand like, religious leaders all through time have wore what they considered sacred outfits, sacred uh, vestments, um, sacred um, clothes to, to accompany them on their leading a congregation or a religious uh, group of people, then, then suddenly it's not as big of a deal. But as I looked around as a 19-year-old at everybody, I thought, wow, this is so strange. Like everybody looks so weird and you have, and I'll get to this in a moment, the ceiling, I'll show some pictures, but you have in your mind, like this is Mormonism. This is just an extension of Mormonism. My Sunday experience, the temple is just an extension of my Sunday experience. And the second thought I have, the second thought I have is, wow, this isn't the Mormonism I signed up for. This isn't the Mormonism that I practice on Sunday. This isn't the Mormonism I practice through the week. This is something different and strange and odd. Um, it, it's, it's like there's two different Mormonisms, right? Like there's your Sunday experience and then there's the temple. And they are so incongruent with each other in some ways that it takes some real getting used to. Um, when it came to the signs and tokens, and I won't go into those, I'll respect those. When it comes to the signs and tokens, as I'm make, making the signs and signaling them by doing the various things, as I am, uh, as they each have names to them, um, it strikes me because I'm a smart guy and, and I've got a high IQ and I do a really good job of memorizing data. It's really been a blessing to doing this podcast is the ability to talk about something and then go like, oh yeah, here's the data point. 
I can pull that file cabinet out and grab that piece of data. It, it struck me as like, oh, I can remember these. I can be better than all these. And I don't mean better like, like arrogant. Like I can remember these signs and tokens. And so when the day comes, I take my last breath and I uh, get to the sentinels who guard the, the gates of the celestial kingdom. I will memorize these signs and tokens, um, these, these signals, so that I can easily pass these sentinels. And it, early on, it doesn't really strike me that that's such an odd thing that we're saying, like, what gets you back to God is being a righteous person. But then you also, what really gets you back to God is memorizing these words and signs. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But early on, I actually had a lot of trouble memorizing them. Uh, certainly not the first time through. And even as I went back again and again and again to the temple, and again, I lived in Ohio. I wasn't close. Toronto was eight hours away. Uh, Chicago temple, I think was five hours away. Um, it wasn't until I was, I don't know, my, my mid twenties, late twenties before the Columbus, Ohio temple was built. And we had one two hours away. So for much of my early time in the church, it was quite a distance. Um, went to Nauvoo one year, went to Toronto a couple of times, went to Chicago one year. Uh, we made a big ward trip to Chicago, stayed overnight in a hotel. It was a lot of fun because those were my friends. They were my, they were my ward family to the truest sense of the word. Um, I was flustered in the endowment both my first time through as well as uh, all my, my accompanying times through after that, that I could never dress as fast as some of these old guys. And I get it. Some of these old guys were in there every day, um, but it, it made me feel so insecure that here I am this jumping, uh, relatively athletic. I played a lot of sports in school. Um, I, I'm younger. Um, I've got some pep in my step and yet these older guys are always getting dressed faster than me. I'm always the last guy in the room. Who's got everything on, right? I'm so self-conscious about the temple clothing and, and there's so much insecurity tied to that for me, like the going through the endowment scared me both my first time through and all the rest of them, because I had so many insecurities about how I was navigating all of the process of the endowment. Um, to each of you who are here, 52 watching, just want to say hi, um, Josh Snyder, good, uh, friend of mine. He was actually in the same ward I was in, uh, in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, but he moved away before I joined the church. And so we've never met each other face to face. But as I have stepped away from the church, uh, him and I have had a lot of good conversations. So Josh, good morning to you too. Um, let me go into a couple of other things here. So flustered and embarrassed by the dressing. Um, often I would have my robe on the wrong side. And then I've got this 92 year old man behind me with halitosis trying to tell me to put it on a different way. And I could never understand like tying the string as I'm trying to, to keep all this stuff on and nothing fits right. And I've got these white slippers and everybody else has these nice white shoes. And I just felt so out of place in the endowment. Um, I really didn't like it. Then there's a part later in the endowment where we make this promise to give everything, everything we have. And, and there's a spot where I'm jumping ahead a half a second and I know the wording is going to be the kingdom of God. But rather than the kingdom of God, it is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it's another, it's the second moment, my first time through, it's the second moment where I go, hmm, 
something's not right there. I should be promising all that I have to building up the kingdom of God, not everything I have to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I, I recognize like something feels off. It feels like the inappropriate rhetoric to use in this spot in the temple. Um, it always felt like it should have been the kingdom of God. And so if I'm making recommendations to the LDS church, I would say that. I would say, let's start focusing on not building up our $124 billion into $250 billion. Let's instead focus on getting our members to commit themselves to helping Jesus and Heavenly Father to build the kingdom of God all over the world, not just the church. Like there's lots of ways to build the kingdom, and most of them, even if Mormonism is true, most of them have zero to do with Mormonism. Did I ever have positive experiences in the temple? By the way, this whole episode came about because a listener met, reached out to me and said, Bill, you've never talked about this subject, about your experiences in the temple. And so um, it prompted me to go like, all right, fine, this Thursday we'll do it. So here we are. Did I ever have positive experiences in the temple? Yes. Doing ordinances for my immediately deceased family. I don't think I've got my genealogy here. Let me think about this for just a split second. Um, I think I've got it downstairs in my in my little cubby space under my stairwell. But I never, I'm the first member of my family in the church. I think I have a distant third uncle who reached out to me early on in my time in the church and helped me get started with some of the basic genealogy, four-generation chart, basically. But beyond that, nothing was done. And so it was really cool. My father-in-law is huge into genealogy. And so he helped me get started. At first, it was like I dreaded it. But then I fell in love with family history work. Um, I caught the spirit of Elijah. And um, as I start family history work, I really fell in love with it. And I start finding stuff. Like I, I do a, I'm like getting data and finding things. To the point where if I had my gener four generation chart here, that'd be filled up no problem. I then bought like the one that has like 11 generations on one side and seven on the back. And that is like 85% full. There's very few empty spots on that. Um, I think I don't have a hole in my, in my genealogy chart until I get to like generation number nine or 10. And then there's one or two, and then it's not until generation like 13 that I start having um, some significant gaps uh, in that chart. My mom, who's a non-member, and she hated the church. Um, that's another thing I should note. When I went to the temple to get endowed and sealed, my parents couldn't go. And it, it broke my mom's heart. And at the time, I understood like, this makes sense. Um and it did at the time to me. It doesn't now. It made sense in that we have these stories about steadying the ark and that only certain people can carry out certain responsibilities in the kingdom of God. There are only certain people who can hold certain callings or have certain stewardships. And so it made sense to me that only an active, worthy Mormon can go to the temple. But that's such a naive way to see it. It's such a such a blind spot there. I didn't grasp the hurt. I didn't 
take myself out of my own shoes and put them on mom's shoes for a moment. And so as a mother, you plan your entire life. You, you've worked your ass off. And my mom worked her ass off to raise me and my brother and to raise us right. And as a parent, it's this exciting moment when your kids go out into the real world and when they get married, like being part of that ceremony is important. And I screwed my mom over because Mormonism told me to do that. And to this day, it's, you know, I, there's things about Mormonism I love and there's things that Mormonism gave me that I'm appreciative of. Um, but I am deeply angry at Mormonism for taking my, my wedding away from my mother. Um, deeply hurtful, deeply hurtful. Um, going back to the endowment, we finished the endowment. I've completed everything. I now go to the veil. And uh, again, I'm struggling with the memorization of this. And it, I just feel like it should come easier to me, but it doesn't. And I finish the, and, and by the way, I'm expecting something dramatic to happen. I am in the temple of the Lord. This is where I get a chance to meet God on his space in his ground. This is his house. I'm in God's house and I am expecting to, to encounter God on a significant level. And as I finish everything at the veil, this human hand comes through. And, and as I'm having this interaction with this other human being, it's not what I expected. I didn't know what I expected. I don't know if I expected like Elohim himself to reach through and grab my hand and pull me. I don't know. I didn't know what to expect but I expected something more than just rituals and rites. I expected deep, profound spiritual experiences. And so did I ever have positive experiences in temple? Yeah, for doing family history work for my deceased family, just this feeling of accomplishment of taking these folks who were completely unconnected from Mormonism and helping them get back to God. But there wasn't anything tangible to that. Um, I had positive experiences providing travel and supervision to the youth on youth baptismal trips. Those were fun for me. I enjoyed them. They were spiritual to the extent that I felt good. And I felt like I was being a good Mormon. And that's I wanted nothing more, nothing more than to be a good Mormon. I think if you went back to my ward in, in Sandusky, Ohio, and you said, forget, forget the fact that Bill became antagonistic and he left. Forget the fact that Bill wants to talk and harp on these messy issues and he wants to continually try to tell us that our, our history is not accurate. Take all that aside. Tell me about the Bill Reel who was an active believing member of your ward. And I, and I think to a T, almost all of them would say like, he was as good of a Mormon as there was. I was both feet in, all in. And so providing transportation and supervision to the youth on temple trips was fun and a blessing to my life. It was, it was enjoyable to participate and to help these kids have good experiences. Um, the other thing that I think I can't, can't quite put my finger on, but it certainly doesn't mean the church is true, is that every time I walked out of the temple, I, I had this feeling inside me, no matter how bored I was during the session, no matter how insecure I was in the session, no matter how I 
how nervous I was. When I walked out of the temple, I had this feeling inside me that I wanted to be a better dad. I wanted to be a better father. I wanted to be a better human being. And so on some level, the temple does its job. It it takes us out of the world and it redirects us to looking inside of ourselves and rededicating ourselves to being something better again, rather than getting caught up in just the mundane day-to-day stuff of the world and all of us kind of getting off track at times, um, building bad habits and making mistakes. It was a chance to kind of renew my spiritual commitment. And I felt that as, uh, as I left. Um, I remember, you know, again, going into the celestial room and we should pull up here a picture of the celestial room. So give me a second here. We'll do that. Oh, I just have two ceiling rooms. Sorry. Um, I had a picture of a celestial room. Um, but when you when you go into the celestial room, again, I, I love it. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a great place to sit and to think and ponder. But there's also like this awareness of like, you can't stay here forever. And yes, you can stay as long as you want. But everyone else that you're with that wants to move on, they've done this a bunch of times. Um. You also have to go through, you feel pressure to have to go through the endowment to get to the social room. It would be nice. If there were a temple 20 minutes away when I was an acting believing member, it would be nice just to go there, say, hey, can I just go in the celestial celestial room? Can I just get in there and meditate for a while? And I never felt like that was okay. But the room is beautiful. Um, and, and, And it's a great place. There's lots of spaces. We all can find our quiet spaces to reground, recenter ourselves. I think the celestial room is a great space in Mormonism to do that. Um, it, it, it didn't strike me as anything other than a expensive, fancy quiet room, um, kind of an expensive, fancy study. And I didn't have, I, there are lots of times I went to the celestial room seeking guidance, asking questions, having thoughts on my mind, and I can't recall a single instance where I walked out of the celestial room feeling like I had some sort of answer. It never gave that to me. And so the temple was really never a place that I had deep spiritual experiences. My spiritual experiences in my my life were connected to other things. Um, but I always did leave the temple wanting to be a better dad, wanting to be a better husband. Um and, and I think that's important. I think that serves a purpose. I think it does that for a lot of Mormons. And I think that's a good thing. So I get done with my first endowment and go back uh, to the hotel where my, my, my fiance, who's going to be my wife tomorrow, and her parents are. So I sleep in this bed with my father-in-law and my fiance sleeps with her mom in these two queen beds. And we get up the next day, and then we go to the temple to be sealed. And so we go to the sealing room. <clears throat> By the way, again, married in the Washington, D.C. temple. To this day, I've got a picture here. To this day, I think the Washington, D.C. temple is the, the most beautiful. Um, and let me just post here. We've got people you know, saying, making comments and asking questions. Um, whoop, sorry, that didn't show up. Uh, Max says, do you remember any conversation in the celestial room when you finished the first session? Um, I don't, I I remember there was a, a, a before thing that we all sat in this room 
and and the one of the temple presidents here, somebody had a conversation with us about what was about to take place, and there was a uh, iteration of uh, these are sacred things. We don't talk about them outside the temple. These are things that we we don't speak of because they're sacred. So there was that whole thing before, but I don't remember anything afterward. So if Mac, if you or anybody else wants to chime in and share what that what that means, I'd love to hear it from you. Um, so there's the the Washington. Got to get rid of that glare, maybe. There's the Washington D.C. Temple. To this day, I think it's the most beautiful of all the temples. Um, the fact that I got married there, my I, I treasure my marriage. My wife and I have a a wonderful marriage. And there's a part of me that has lost something beautiful about where we did it and how it went down. But I still think to this day, the Washington DC temple is the most beautiful of all of them. If I had to get married in the temple, I'm glad that's where I got married. Um, and I was Mormon and that's how we do things. And so that's where I went. And I'm, and at the time I, I couldn't have been happier. Um, so I went for answers. Sometimes I didn't feel anything. Um, but the but we do go into the ceiling room that day. Sorry, I'm I'm kind of bouncing around. I'm sorry about that. It's kind of the way my brain works. I get off on different tangents in my head. So I go into the ceiling room, and um, the the room's gorgeous. We'll pull up here a ceiling room. Give me a second or two to to pull this up. When you're one person operating this streaming program, it is complicated to to get everything to kind of be where it should. So there you can see it, ceiling room. There's a mirror on both sides. And so you essentially see off forever because of the reflection. Kind of a cool little thing. It always catches your eye when you walk in there. You have this altar and you're dressed in the full temple garb and you're at this altar and you're kneeling down next to your beautiful fiance and you're ready to get married for all time and eternity. And your family's sitting all around. Again, there's only four of my, my family, my father-in-law, mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, and sister-in-law, and then the two of us. And then the officiator goes through all the ritual and uh, whatnot of that. And, you know, you have this expectation um, when you get married. Like, you just picture, like, you're going to be in a tux and your wife's going to be in this beautiful bridal outfit. And even something like this, which is the underclothing that you would have on when you go through the temple, even that like that, you're like, okay, that's beautiful. But what you end up with, um, the best I can come up with here is like this lady here um, with the full outfit on. And so she's showing the one piece garment. She's showing the full outfit, but it, you just realize like, oh, this isn't, this isn't that this isn't this thing where we're all going to be dressed nice and look good. It's this thing where we all are dressed awkwardly and, and look kind of strange. Um, here's what the guys look like. And it's, it's kind of a strange outfit. And to, to be a convert, to think your entire life about like, I'm going to get married someday. And, and this is the kind of stuff that I'm going to be wearing. Um, you, it's just a disconnect from what you planned or thought or what you imagined versus what actually it is. But, um, I got married. The, the promises were there. We, we did all the ritual of the ceiling. Um, I gave my wife a quick kiss across the altar 
And then you weren't even supposed to exchange rings there. You had to exchange rings outside of that room. So we did it, I think, out in the hallway, if I remember right. And then we went outside the temple and took pictures. And then my wife and I began our married life. I did a live session in Salt Lake City once. So maybe just spend a second live session. Interesting. Um, obviously not as cool as the church wants the endowment to be. Um, the church likes having the movie and the production and the actors and the music and the video and all that stuff. It makes for a, a, a giant, well-done production. And then when you go to a live session, um, you're sometimes caught off guard by, you know, Adam and Eve are 92 years old and Lucifer is 50. And you're struck by some of the awkwardness of it. Um, but the, I, I you know, did a live session once in Salt Lake City. I think every believing active Mormon should do that once. I think they should see what a live session is like. Uh, I'm glad I did it. And and I want to kind of, I want to give a chance for some phone calls. Um, and so I'll put the number up here in just a moment. And so we'll do that. Um, but I want to share a couple other comments here and share essentially what I, what I took away from this in the end. So Mac here says, I just remember everyone who came with me looking at me a little nervously and the general messaging of it gets less weird the more you go. I tried really, really hard to think that I just had had a great experience, but not being able to shake the emptiness of the whole thing. Mac, that describes my experience beautifully. I was supposed to have had a great experience. Everybody says the temple is the, the epiphany of Mormonism. And and yet it was empty and there were parts of it that I recognized early were unhealthy. Um, so thank you for saying that. Matthew says, my wife felt screwed because she wanted her wedding somewhere else. We did not have a choice then. She still wanted the ceiling just after the marriage. Yeah, that that is a procedural change that will deeply bless uh, members, the members to come and generations to come. Josh says, DC is lovely. My first temple experience happened there as a youth from the Sandusky ward, funny enough. So again, same ward. Thanks for sharing that, Josh. Uh, Douglas says, hi, Bill. I just want to say thank you for all you do. Your stories helped me a lot as I transitioned out of the church. Um, things that I took away. So this is me now. And over time, as I deconstructed Mormonism and now looking back, it seems ridiculous to me to have the memorization of words be the thing that moves you past the sentinels who guard the pearly gates of heaven and allow you to waltz into the celestial kingdom. It doesn't make sense. And I, I get it. Like an apologist would come on and go, Bill, that's not it. Like the, the signs and tokens are about something else. And then there's the endowment. And then there's the presentation of the endowment. And we ought to focus on the spirituality of the endowment and not so much the outfit that Joseph Smith clothed the endowment in. Well, the reality is you feel pressure that these words and signs and tokens are what allows you to pass through the veil. Really what it is, it's the signs and tokens that allow you to pass into a next space in the Masonic Lodge. So it's just Joseph Smith directly borrowing or plagiarizing from Masonry to create a, a ritual that he can now use in Mormonism. But this idea that words and signs and tokens get you into the celestial kingdom is insane. Yes. Come in, babe. Sorry, my wife was just knocking on the door. Um, 
when you when you understand psychology and what unhealthy mechanisms uh, can be utilized in order to promote loyalty or allegiance or false belief, the temple makes more sense. Like the temple is full of mechanisms that promote loyalty, that promote obedience, that promote fear and an uncertainty of boundaries. And so as I went through the temple later on in my time in the church, when I'm deconstructing and I'm starting to lose belief, I started to see the temple for what it was. And it's deeply unhealthy mechanisms that create, um, that create us following and, and obeying, um, but in ways that are unhealthy or abusive to the person. The temple works to be such a mechanism of coercion. And even after you leave, like if you leave later in life, it is damn difficult because you probably have kids who believe. I About two, three, four people a week come into my pawn shop and say, hey, Bill, I'm a listener. I want to talk to you for a minute. And so many of those stories involve still believing children of these parents who have deconstructed and left. And once you've deconstructed and you no longer believe, but your children you taught to believe in this thing, the temple now becomes this really abusive thing that creates unbalance in these family relationships and family dynamics. Like the kids are still going. And if you're not worthy, you can't. And the church suggests this distancing away from anybody who's apostate. Um, there's this, this unwritten order of things of shunning in the LDS church. And so um, these mechanisms divide families. They don't build families together. There's the families, if unless everybody's on the same believing page of being believing and worthy in Mormonism, the temple acts as a wedge. It does the opposite of what Mormonism says it's there to do. Um, Joshua here says again, we'll put another comment up. Oops, see if it works. For some reason, it's suddenly not working. Hmm. Okay. Sorry. Um, I was going to put a comment up, but Josh says, what do you, uh, no, no, sorry. Regardless of how meaningless the temple is to me now, I will always respect those ancient folks at the Salt Lake city temple who performed the live session as frail as they were. Yeah. For the people who think that that's the, an ultimate form of service, you know, bless their hearts for doing that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Jolene's Jolene says, what do you think about, let me just make sure my sound is good. Give me two seconds, folks. Sorry, it just kicked me out. And now we're back in. Looks like everything's good. So uh, Jolene says, what do you think about when people say that masonry goes all the way back to the Old Testament? Uh, the fact is it doesn't. Uh, masonry goes back to maybe at best 1400 AD, um, but more likely somewhere around 1600 AD. Um, Joshua says, I served at the Oakland Temple Committee as a high counselor and met with Elder Packer quarterly. Those meetings really opened my eyes to the fact that the temple system is really about brand loyalty. So there's that. Um, I want to say that I'm glad they addressed all the sexual inequality. I didn't see a lot of that when I was going through the temple because I'm a white privileged male. But as I had friends around me who were deconstructing at the same time I did, some of them were deeply hurt by the misogyny, the sexism, excuse me, the sexism in the temple. And so the recent changes of removing a lot of the sexism out 
a lot of the inequality out. Um, it, it, um, it, it, it's a huge step forward, right? It's a huge step forward. And so I'm grateful. Again, I, I don't think Mormonism is true. I think it's demonstrable that it's not. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's going to go away. I know there's lots of people who say, burn it to the ground. Well, I don't think it's going to burn. I think it's going to slowly die, but that's going to take a hundred years, 200 years. And there's always going to be something regarding Mormonism left. There's always going to be somebody willing to believe in it, no matter how absurd the data is. And so I'm grateful for the steps that Mormonism takes to become healthier and to become less abusive, less trauma causing. Um, eternal families became something that didn't make sense as I deconstructed. It at times was the sole reason Mormonism was interesting to me. And yet as I deconstructed Jesus and religions and myth and churches, the idea of our consciousness going back to some place where all of those of uh, we loved, that they were there and present, and that their consciousness resides there, and that all of our consciousness gets to interact with each other with the memory of what our lives looked like, that no longer made sense. And once I gave up this idea of eternal families, then the reward of busting my ass in this life in order to promote this particular religious system and to give everything I have to it um, becomes ridiculous. And then lastly, I would just say this idea, uh, Jolene says, we couldn't hear you on the video. Um, if, if you still can't hear me, let me know. But I think we're back up and running. Uh, sorry, I think there might've been a moment where it was cutting out and it finally kicked me out and now we're back in. Um, the final thing I wanna say is this idea of controlling your laughter, this promise to not laugh loudly, uh, I love laughing. I love humor. I love joking with my friends. Um, I really love it. Oh, sorry. Jolene was saying she was responding to my wife. Yeah, there wasn't any sound here. That's why I didn't put the comment up. Um, the controlling of your laughter and telling you what underwear to wear. Now that I'm on this side of things, that seems so stark of a difference. Like I belonged to a religious system that told me that controlled at what decibel I laughed and it controlled what underwear I wear. And when you understand the mechanisms that cults use, and I don't like that word necessarily, but when you look at unhealthy systems, deeply unhealthy systems, the unhealthiest of systems, um, controlling your laughter, controlling your underwear, controlling whether you drink a cup of coffee or tea, is insane. Um, I'm glad to be out. It's not my church anymore. I'm I'm grateful for it's it's good things it gave me. It gave me some good ideals. I'm grateful and to some extent, and I'm angry at it, but I'm grateful for its negative too, because this negative prompted me to think critically and to take back my own authority and to challenge this thing. Um Drake said, to your point on coercion, in the very beginning before anything starts, you have to uh, swear that you'll never betray or go against the church, or you must leave now. Then they pause and allow someone to leave. I swear I thought I could get up and leave, but I didn't have the courage to do that. What was it that they say in the beginning? So I don't know that. Uh, my phone's going off like crazy. I just turned it off airplane mode because I'm going to message a friend who is going to call and tell a story. Um, give a second here. 
try to go back into something. Let me send a quick text out and then I'm going to put a phone number up so that you guys can call. Yeah, sorry. I get messages all day long. Um, so I'm just going to send him a quick number. Let this thing open up. Bear with me for about 30 seconds. Uh, my wife said, I laugh big. Uh, that is hard for me. Um, yeah, my wife, my wife's a lot of fun. She has got a great sense of humor and she does. She loves to laugh. And so I can certainly see how that would be super difficult or was super difficult for her. Uh, by the way, baby, we talked about maybe talking about the temple last night in kind of our conversation, never got to it. I, I don't want to resume that tonight. Um, a couple other comments here. One of the frustrating parts of the temple is how many changes can you make before it's not valid as a saving ordinance? The clothing changed, the penalties taken out, the wording's been changed. It keeps being changed. And it's this thing that we're told is eternal. It's never changing. Joseph Smith says, I implemented it from God. We shouldn't tamper with it. There were leaders early on who said we shouldn't tamper with it. And then we've changed everything. Uh, if you want to call the show, uh, there's the number, 435-277-0511. And I think I've got the uh, the phone call thing fixed. If anybody wants to share a, uh, a story, <clears throat> I'd love to hear it. Uh, you're welcome to call the show. Um, would love to have somebody do that. Hoping that uh, if anybody wants to call and share their temple story, would love to, to have that happen. Um, essentially, that's all I've got. Uh, I wanted to hang on here a few minutes because I, I anticipate there's a lot of people who are emotionally connected to positive or negative at the temple. Um, but Jacob says, love that I don't have to wear garments, especially in the St. George summer. Yeah, living here in southern Utah, man, it is hot in the summer, but it was even worse in Ohio because Ohio had this high humidity. And so you just got, you just sweat no matter what. As soon as you got out of the shower, you start sweating and your clothes stick to you. Um, I'll tell you too, my my relationship with my wife has gotten a whole lot sexier now that we don't wear G's. We we sleep nude most nights uh, or at, at, at worst, we're in our underwear, but... Um, Skin on skin is an incredible thing. Um, and taking uh, taking garments off and getting rid of those things and buying normal underwear and sleeping nude at night, uh, the sexuality between me and my wife is incredible. It's, it was always good. And now it's like 10 times better, the intimacy and the connection. Um, so garments are one of those things I'm just grateful to be rid of. Uh, Jolene says, I never understood the purpose of temple prep classes. They never prepared you for what the temple is. That's right. It was, it was, it's like training, right? We train our bishops, we train our stick presidents, and really we don't. We don't at all. Stephanie says, I think the whole experience rocked me. I couldn't even remember my new name after going through the first time. My sister was my escort and kept asking me if I was okay which I responded that I was fine over and over. It wasn't until years later I confided in my husband that I couldn't remember my name. I said I thought it was either Lucy or Lisa, and he said he's pretty sure it's Sarah. Someone finally told me about the website where I could look it up. Yeah, the pressure to remember your name. I, I remember being a Mormon and going like, okay, uh, okay, okay, my name is this, oh, oh, and my wife's name is that. And... I, you know, it was interesting too, when you go through for the first time and get sealed to your wife, you're the one who pulls your fiance through on her endowment. Even the day before when my wife got endowed, 
I wasn't even married to her yet. And I'm the one who pulls her through, even though we're not getting sealed until the day after. Um, she had to have been a little startled. I'd love to, you know, if she's still listening. Uh, she was driving to work. Maybe she's already there or not. But I'd love to know if she was startled a little bit that I was on the other side and the one who pulled her through, which teaches this idea that you women, you can't get into heaven unless us, your your husbands are on the other side waiting to pull you through. Um, anyway, Matthew says, one of the frustrating parts of the temple is how many changes can you make? We already talked about that one. Sorry, my friend. Let me scroll here to the bottom. Ooh, uh, my wife was going to call in. Let me let me message her and just tell her to try again. Go ahead and try again, guys. Maybe I have to be on the screen. Um, maybe I've got to be on the screen. But it sounds like maybe a few calls have come in. Um, hello, you're on Mormon Discussion. This is Bill. Hey, Bill. Just wanted to call in. Uh, I'm a huge supporter of yours and always wanted to call in. I just haven't had the chance yet. So I thought this was a good discussion to jump in with you. So I appreciate your content and, and uh, all the stuff that you do to, to inform us and, and give good, healthy discussion. Thank you. Yeah, well, you're welcome, my friend. I hope you appreciate these. I know, I know some of these are super exciting. There's a lot more data. Some of these are more personal. Some of these are we're just trying to kind of stammer through them. But I uh, love that you called in, and I love that you appreciate what we're trying to do. Yeah, I just wanted to call in. Uh, just thought it would be kind of fun to talk about. Kind of made me reminisce on my my experience going through the first time uh, preparing for my mission. You know, I'm I'm out now. I've been out for uh, almost two years, but uh, it takes me back. Some of those some of those uh, memories are pretty burned into your burned into your memory. So. One was, and I remember, and I, and I look back on it now, I think it was subconsciously out of weight for myself with it. Because I remember my dad was my escort on it. And after we were done, I remember, I can't remember all of this. What do I do if I can't remember all of this? And he just kind of laughed right. at me and said, oh, it's okay. And I said, well, what happens if I die tomorrow? I get to the angels who stand as sentinels, right? And then I'm like, um, I don't really remember anything that I've really said in this. <laughs> Yeah. No, it, there, there's a lot thrown at you, right? When you get to the veil, there's this long paragraph and you, you get beat bits and pieces of it, but to put it all together, you, I always needed help. I always had to have help with the veil to get through that. And it, it made me feel insecure because I, I knew I had a good memory. There was a lot of things I could just remember easily. And this one thing I just deeply struggled with and had a lot of insecurities with trying to memorize all the stuff that goes into the temple. Yeah. Well, and I thought I, I was the same way, but I thought, well, gee, if I, you know, if I end up dying this week, there's not going to be a, someone helping me at the veil or what? Are my ancestors going to be there helping me at the veil, whispering in my ear? No, this is what you're supposed to say. I was like, what do I do? I'm not going to be, you know, I think subconsciously I thought, well, crap, I'm not going to make it. I better start memorizing this thing more because I won't be able to get through. Don't and, just say, oh, no, you didn't get it right. Right. And what if I get dementia? Or or what if right or what if um what if the anti Mormons what if they memorize it do they get into heaven like there's so much that goes into this idea of words or what allows us to pass sentinels who guard the gates it's it becomes kind of insane on this side of things yeah you you kind of laugh at uh, the conjecture my dad gave gave me uh, he said well when you die uh, your memory is going to be a lot better than it is now I thought okay you know just trust my dad I was like well and then i thought later 
where is he getting that information from? Like, how do we know that? We just all of a sudden know that, oh, everything that we've soaked up in this life, we'll be able just to regurgitate no problem. Our memories will be 100%. So yeah. I just kind of laughed and had a funny, funny experience. And, and I look back now where I'm at, I was like, I think that added a little bit of weight, not to along with everything else that went through the temple, but I think that added a little bit of weight. Like, you know, this kind of doesn't add up here, this whole memorization thing, you know, keywords and passwords and secret things just didn't kind of add up. Yeah. Appreciate the phone call, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Take it easy. I'm going to try to reach out to my wife here. She tried to call a few times. Let's see if she's still on her drive. Hello. Are you at work yet or you got a minute, baby? You're on the air. I, hi, I just pulled up to work. So I have like a whole two seconds. Tell us what you, what was on your mind? Um, so when I had seven minutes, I was going to ask if there was any questions you had for me, but, yeah. um, I, I like the endowment session too. I mean, not the endowment, the, the, the washing and going in. I don't know why, but I felt special in that little time by myself with, with the woman doting over me, I guess. So that always felt a little special to me. Um, but then I would feel guilty during the endowment. It was just too long to sit there and I started to fall asleep and, then I feel guilty, like if I fall asleep, is this that person getting what they're supposed to get? So, kind of a weird dynamic. Yeah, no, and and you know, you mentioned the laughing thing. You and I have never talked about that. It's interesting that you know you like to laugh loud, and you were always kind of poked by the fact that the temple wanted you to that the temple required you to make a promise to keep your laughter down. Yeah, and I I would try so hard, and I fell every single time. Um. Yeah, I just, I laugh big. I, I, I'm i a happy person generally. And, well, I do all my emotions big, I guess, but it was always hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love you, baby. Have a great day at work. Okay. I love you. Bye-bye. Bye, audience. If anybody else wants to call in, now is your chance to do it. 435 277 Um Ryan says there is no more Mormon thing than to worry that there's not enough grace or help when one approaches the veil after death. We're conditioned to think we are always on our own. You have to do all that you can after all that you can do. Right. Um, absolutely. Uh, 435-277-0511. If there's any other calls that want to take place, otherwise I'm going to wait about another 30 seconds here and, uh, we'll just call it a day. Um, Appreciate everybody. Uh, Mormon Discussion Podcast uh, really appreciates you listening. Uh, can I just put out my two cents? If if you're not supporting the program, would you please consider it? You, can you imagine the amount of time that I or uh, Marriage on a Tightrope or Radio Free Mormon or any of the other podcasts that are out there, how much time and energy they put into this? I work full time. I manage a pawn shop here in Southern Utah. And I put hundreds of hours into this thing, uh, this podcast thing as well. Uh, welcome to Mormon Discussion. You're on the air. Hey, Bill. Great to be on the air with you. Thanks for everything you do. Awesome. Appreciate it, my uh, friend. Thank you. Hey, um, one of the experiences I had going through the temple is I heard little bits and pieces of what was to be expected. Like, I knew there would be an altar. And I knew there may be, you know... Uh, my family sort of tried to prepare me by saying, well, 
you know, you're going to kind of have to undress and, you know, that may be uncomfortable just, but it's going to be okay. And my, you know, imagination kind of ran wild with what little knowledge I had. And, you know, I really didn't know what to expect, but what's scary is when I think back, I think back what I was willing to do. And, and it really scares me because I think, okay, I'm going to walk into this. I have no idea what's going to go on, but I knew I would just push through it. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, absolutely. Blind, yeah. The blind obedience. So, I mean, maybe if you, I don't really have a, a question, just that was my experience. And I look back now and, and I know in my mind, uh, just some of the things that I thought is, okay, what if I'm standing there naked and people in a room and I just have to stand there, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I knew I was ready to do that. I was ready to witness. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I thought this, but I was like, maybe there's going to be animal sacrifice. Um, so, and I know that sounds weird, but it was just, I just knew whatever it was, I was going to do it, you know? And that really looking back at how scary that is. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know what my comment is other than that, but I just think, you know, we, we're just so brainwashed to do whatever, but we don't really know what we're getting into. Yeah. Know? We, yeah, we're taught not to question, right? Like there's, there's, we're not allowed to question. We feel that early on. We recognize there are people in charge. The authorities have the answers. They have the, they have the responsibility. They, this stuff all comes from God. There's no room to say, stop. This doesn't feel right. I'm not okay with this. And, yeah, that's hundred percent. Yeah, and then yep, your imagination fills in the voids, right? Your and, and when when you're not prepared for things, your imagination fills in the voids. So animal sacrifice <clears throat> or being naked and going down into some kind of pool and being washed and anointed, those things start to creep in when you have no clue what you're getting into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, my friend. All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks for calling. Uh. LaRue says, thank you for your respectful discussion. I appreciate that. Um, I always try, I really try to do the right thing. And I try to be honest and vulnerable. Um, I don't I don't want to offend where it's unnecessary. I'm not going for shock value. But I also won't be, as a deconstructed ex-Mormon, I won't be guilted and shamed into not showing the unhealthy parts of Mormonism because it uses the sacred, not secret uh, mantra. That doesn't hold up. So thank you. Thank you, LaRue, for, for your comment. Uh, Tony says, the only thing I like that makes sense in the temple is baptism for the dead. Marty says, I went through back in 1977 and the washing and anointing was totally bizarre. And the signs of the penalties were scary. Yeah, I recognize that. Those those ended, I think, in 92. Um, and so uh, for whatever reason, you know, they they got rid of those. And I think we all know the reason, which is that as things became more public. They certainly didn't want that to be something the public knew or that uh, ex-Mormons could utilize against the church. Uh, anyway, glad everybody was here today. Uh, appreciate all of you. Enjoy your day. But if you do have a chance to um, donate uh, to the podcast, I, I hate asking for money, but it really helps us to keep doing these things. And so if you think the message is important of helping you deconstruct and of all of these podcasts and other folks out there putting information out that helps us all to process this thing we were a part of, um, would you please consider going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org 
and hitting the donate button and just donate five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month. Or if you have the means, a hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a year. Um, all of that helps us to keep going. Uh, I've got no plans to go anywhere, but man, there are times where you get really burned out. And, uh, you know, the, the financial side of it is what really allows me and uh, Marriage on a Tightrope and Radio Free Mormon and all the others uh, to continue on. So if you, if you enjoy the production, if you enjoy the conversations, if you enjoy the space that it opens, uh, please, 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 mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Hit the donate button. Uh, looking forward to talking to you guys again soon. Have a great day. Uh, one of these days, I'd love to get a bunch of you on and whatever questions you want to ask, anything about anything, I'd love to answer. And that goes for any of these. Whenever we sit down and we do this, uh, feel free to ask anything. I tried to put up as many of the, the comments as I could, but have an awesome day. You guys are awesome. And uh, I love all of you guys. I've met a bunch of you and I appreciate these relationships. Um, deconstructing a religion together uh, has been a beautiful thing. Uh, on this side of life and it's helped us all to be more appreciative of what we have have a great day and see you next time